People say less is more. At Red Barn, we think less is better. It's what you won't find that sets our natural premium pet food apart. No byproducts, no corn or soy, no fillers. Just the natural ingredients your pets need to live the healthy life they deserve. Look at the label. We want you to. Red Barn Naturals Pet Food. Simply the best. Find it in your local pet specialty store. Visit redbarninc.com slash coupon to save a dollar off your first can. Blog Talk Radio. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring and informing the journey to a sustainable healthcare economy. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And joining me in our virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hello, Greg. How are you doing today? I'm doing great here. No complaints in San Diego. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he's a veteran healthcare executive and president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm, and is past chair and current board member of the Population Health Alliance. He's known on Twitter as at F.S. Goldstein. Fred's experience spans hospital and health system administration, HMO general management, and is the founder of a disease management company. My background includes thought leadership and consulting for hospitals, health systems, capitated medical groups, IPAs, and a whole bunch of WAGs, as we call them. I published and principally author ACO Watch, Health Innovation Media, and PrecisionMedicine.Center. Please follow me on Twitter by at 2HealthGuru. Today, we continue coverage of issues in the emerging population health space, including evidence-based best practices with key thought leaders, innovators, academics, and best-in-class vendors. Our special guest today is Ron Getzel, Ph.D., Vice President of Consulting and Applied Research for Truven Health Analytics, as well as the Senior Scientist and Director of the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Getzel is responsible for leading innovative research projects in healthcare purchaser managed care, government, and pharmaceutical clients interested in conducting cutting-edge research focused on the relationship between health and well-being, medical costs, and work-related productivity. He's a nationally recognized and widely published expert in health and productivity management, return on investment, program evaluation, and outcomes research. Dr. Getzel has published well over 100 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters and frequently presents at international business and scientific forums. Over the past 20 years, his work has focused on large-scale evaluations of health promotion, disease prevention, and disease management programs in the public and private sectors, both domestically and abroad. So with that introduction, Fred, help us get to know Dr. Getzel and what he's up to at Truven Health and the John Hopkins uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thanks so much, Greg and Ron. Great to have you on the show. 
Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Fred. Oh, you're most welcome. It's great to talk to you again since uh, we met, I guess, uh, last time was probably a few months back at the um, PHA debate. So uh, let's start out, Ron, a little bit. Talk a little about the the, uh, Bloomberg School and what work you're doing there. Right. So uh, what we do at the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies is try to bring together academic researchers with people in the real world, essentially, the people who have to, on a day-to-day basis, manage population health and whether that's health promotion programs or disease management programs. But there's this uh, sharp divide typically between academia and the business world, and we're trying to bridge that gap so that academics are sharing their knowledge, their skills, their methods, their expertise with the business world. And the business world is also showing what the academic community needs to know about what is really going on in the real world in terms of their issues, their problems, things that they need to solve, and the speed by which they need answers. So I know you've been involved for years looking at population health programs, and let's first take a look maybe at the, at the employer space. A lot of questions about whether or not these programs work. You've done some interesting presentations I've seen on, you know, what, what does and doesn't work. So where are we really with this field? Is, it, is there enough knowledge to say these things are worth doing? So it's a complex question, as you might imagine. There are several layers here. Number one uh, is defining what the it is, what the intervention is. I remember having a meeting with uh, one of the skeptics out there, And he said, well, you know, just put in your typical health promotion program or typical wellness program. I said, there is no such thing. There are so many variations on a theme out there, uh, and some of them are uh, quite good. They're quite comprehensive, and uh, others of them are quite surface, and they actually don't work very well. In fact, uh, the ratio is probably uh, 10% that are excellent programs and 90% that are really quite superficial, and and you wouldn't expect them to achieve many results. So that's one element, and I'll talk in a while about kind of what are the best practices, what constitutes excellent programs. But the second part of that is what do we mean by work? What are we expecting these programs to do? So at a very basic level, what you expect these programs to do is uh, be good at marketing themselves to their potential clients. So uh, are they doing a good job in marketing, raising awareness, getting people to at least pay attention that they're out there? And secondly, and very importantly, uh, are people actually showing up at the door? Are they participating and doing even more? Are they becoming engaged in these programs? So they're not just checking a box or just filling out a form or attending a webinar, let's say, but they're actually taking this to heart and, and saying this is something that's relevant to me, is relevant to my life, what I'm trying to achieve, I'm going to work at it. Uh, And the third part is the working at it. In other words, if you want to quit smoking, if you want to start exercising more so than you're doing now, if you want to eat healthy, manage your stress, all those things that are part of this package of things we call wellness programs, there are lots of behavior change things that are involved. And many of them are quite difficult to do because, you know, if you're an adult, you've spent 20, 30, 40 years not doing those things that all of a sudden uh, somebody tells you are a good thing to do. So how do you get people to change their behavior? Uh, Part of it is to motivate them to do so. But the other part that's really important is giving them the skills, the know-how in order to do this. So how do you quit smoking? How do you you eat healthy? How do you set up a good physical activity program? How do you manage stress 
what biometric values are relevant, what are your numbers, how do you manage those numbers. All those things are actually quite complicated uh, to figure out and to get good advice on. So that's another level of what we mean by work. And then you get into uh, other things that are really important, like productivity. Uh, do, you, uh, do you show up to work? When you're at work, are you productive at work? Do you have energy? Do you have focus? Uh, uh, what about disability? You know, how often uh, do you have to go out on disability because of mental or physical uh, emotional problems? And then there's the issue of safety. There's also something called presenteeism, which is the uh, what's holding you back when you're physically at work. You're there, but because of some kind of health issue, you're really not performing at an optimal level. Uh, so there are a variety of different measures and outcomes that are of interest. And so when we say, do, do these programs work, we need to think about all these different levels. And, of course, the critics have really uh, focused on only one measure called ROI, or return on investment, and that's really not the right measure. I think uh, we need to look at things from a broad perspective and look at the value that these programs build, bring to the employees and employers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you've set up this very large, obviously, as you said, this is a very complex area. And as you dig more into it, you it just keeps um, spreading out like the branches on a tree. And you keep adding more and more of these branches, as you think about from the beginning of a selection process to ultimately the end game of moving individuals' health within a specific area of that, like smoking, et cetera. So getting back sort of to that initial point, you talked about how these companies, the first thing is you got to market these kinds of things out. And it looks like companies have been very successful in getting out there. People know about wellness programs. A lot of companies use them, particularly the larger companies. Um, yet, as you said, maybe 90% of these programs are maybe not that good. So how do we get the industry to move or the companies themselves to move that selection process so their first choice at least can be a better choice um, and what should they be looking for? Mm -hmm. All right. So first let me, let me just point out some things that probably don't work uh, when done in isolation. And then I'll talk about things that you have to do in order to make these programs work. So Great. just administering health risk appraisals, usually that in and of itself, you know, there's been actually decades of research showing that that by itself doesn't make a difference. So people do take an HRA. They do answer, uh, you know, either uh, they, they answer uh, in terms of what is really going on, honestly, or what they think you want to hear. Uh, and, and that's it. And it's a 15-minute process. And for anyone to expect that all of a sudden you're going to change your lifelong habits because you've now filled out a questionnaire and gotten some written feedback, uh, unlikely. I mean, it, it may be an opportunity to get somebody's attention, but that by itself is not going to uh, so, make you change your behavior. Go ahead. Right. So, Ron, when if you're just going out there and giving an HRA, and I think I've seen this a few times, and maybe you can elaborate on it. If, if somebody takes it one time, I've seen companies claim, oh, yeah, take an HRA, improve your health, because they ran it the second year. And they got better answers, but those answers were probably driven by people knowing what they should say. Would that be a way to essentially say that? Well, right. Yeah, so, so there's this uh, one element, which is giving you the answer that you think the, the person expects. So uh, you know, trying to be nice to the people, uh, the researchers, or trying to be nice to the company. And because you've been there for a year, uh, you want to show that you've improved. So the key there is to have longitudinal data, not just over two years, but we've worked with companies with 10 years of data. And after a while, you know, those things do tend to, to even out in terms of what the actual answer is in, in real world. Um, 
but also there's the issue of attrition. So let's say in the in the year one you get 10,000 people to, to fill out the questionnaire, but in year two only 5,000 come back and fill it out again. Likely that the people who got healthier are the ones who filled it out the second time. So there's kind of a self-selection going on in multiple years of data, unless you can actually follow the same people over time or provide sufficient incentives to have people fill it out on an annual basis. Got it. And then you talked about just an HRA-only program, and I'm sorry I interrupted you there, but what are some of the other things that have been shown not to work? Well, the, the other thing that's very, very popular nowadays is incentives. In other words, paying people to do something, uh, whether it's paying people to quit smoking or paying people to lose weight uh, or paying people to achieve certain biometric values like like certain cholesterol or blood pressure or triglycerides and, and so forth. Uh, and the problem there is that employers think that if you just pay people to do that, that they'll do it. Now, there's research that's going on right now that certainly shows incentives are excellent ways of drawing people into a program. So if you want to have high participation in the program, yes, if you offer people $50, $100, uh, that certainly is going to get their attention because it's, yeah, great, I'm going to show up. Now now tell me what to do. But if you ask them to quit smoking, if you ask them to lose weight or be more physically active, those things are way more complicated, and there are different kinds of incentive designs that work better than others. Uh, there's some good research that's uh, uh, been published in the last few months, as a matter of fact. Uh, Kevin Volpe's group at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School does a lot of good experimental design. They they have shown that you can get people to quit smoking through incentive programs at, at a rate of three to one, meaning uh, three times more likely to quit smoking if you get an incentive of up to $750 versus those that don't. However, still about 90% of the people who are offered money still don't quit. So money itself is not going to get people to give up a lifelong habit that they, you know, they're addicted to, basically. Similar kinds of results with uh, obesity and physical activity. And again, there are different designs. Some work better than others. For example, loss aversion works better. But basically, bottom line, that just paying somebody to do something that is a habit that that person has, has, uh, has built over time, that by itself is not going to work unless you put it in the context of a good comprehensive health promotion program. Some other things that don't work are kind of uh, uh, quick response programs like Biggest Loser programs, sending people off to the health plan's website because that's where the wellness program is located. Uh, that usually doesn't work. Uh, hiring vendors to fix all the, the sick people uh, without you, the organization, and, and management getting involved in that process and thinking about policies and environmental support, again, that doesn't work. So those are the things that don't work. Uh, on the other hand, things that do work are, uh, number one, is establishing a culture of health within the organization. And what that means is that you are doing more than having a wellness program, but you're intentionally trying to improve the health and well-being and safety of your workers, and you're doing it re- relentlessly. It's intentional. Uh, so things that relate to employee health and well-being are in the business mission, in the built environment, there are performance metrics that align with that, and there are programs and policies and health benefits that reinforce the notion that people are, in this environment, we want people to live a healthy lifestyle. In fact, I remember hearing one CEO say to me, I want people at the end of the day to leave the company property healthier than when they first walked in. I mean, isn't that an amazing 
personal mission that that that, that company has. And we've seen many, many examples of companies that have built cultures of health over time. Uh, aligned with that very much is leadership commitment. So unless you have the senior suite of a company, the CEO, the CFO, uh, HRVPs and everybody saying, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, uh, they're the example, they lead by example, uh, they communicate to their middle management, this is what we are, this is what we're about, uh, there's a budget, there's a business plan, there are committees, uh, and the workers are empowered to be part of the whole process of building a culture of health, that's critically important. So I've just named two really, really important things that are up front. If you don't have, you're not going to have a successful program. And then, you know, I'll go into some of the other things in the middle. But let me let me also say that the, the last thing that you need, number 10 on the list, is measurement and evaluation. So you can have the best intentions and the most wonderful and colorful and well-designed and well-communicated programs. But unless you have metrics that show you've actually moved the needle on population health, no one's going to believe you. And you can also not fine-tune the program for those things that are not working well. So you've got to build in measurement and evaluation and collect data along the way. So this sounds like something one of my friends used to say, says easy and does hard. There's actually a lot that around trying to create a program that works. And you can't just go to a vendor and the vendor comes in and says, hey, I've got your solution. Here it is. And they drop it in there. There's a lot of work that has to be done by the company to create this kind of a culture. Exactly right. And, and, and really, you've got to work on organizational health as well as individual health. So there are many variables in the organization that it needs to look inside internally and say, well, what are we doing to promote health or not? For example, do we have healthy food in our cafeterias and, and vending machines? Uh, do we give people flexibility in terms of their work life? Uh, are, is there a supportive environment? Do people feel that they can uh, talk back to their managers, not talk back, but but provide their insights and input into how things are being run. Do they, you know, like the people they're working with? You know, all those things that are part of the culture that are really the essential founding and 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 undergirding for a successful health promotion program. And you talked a little bit also about number ten, having these metrics out there. This you have to be measuring this stuff. So first, what should people be measuring? And two. What might they expect as far as changes in some of those metrics? Yeah, so when that question comes up, typically people say, what's the ROI? You know, tell me the ROI. You know, is it 3 to 1? Is it 9 to 1? You know, and so forth. I, you know, I, I keep getting things sent to me on the computer, you know, kind of guaranteeing a 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 41 <laughs> ROI. And I think that's crazy. You know, if, if there were ROIs that high, then people would not be investing in the stock market. They'd be investing in these programs day in and day out because what a great return on investment. Uh, so that's not where you should start. I, I think you start uh, in the order that I, I talked about earlier, which is, uh, do you have high awareness of the program? Do people like the program? Are they participating? Are they engaging? And then in terms of behavior change, um, you know, I think the, the, the idea is to change population health. If you can improve on a net basis the key metrics for population health by one percentage point a year, that's remarkable. I think that's an achievement. Now, that sounds very little, but think about it. If 30% if, uh, of your population is obese and you can get it down to 29% of the population in one year, that's a remarkable achievement. The same with smoking rates, same with stress levels, the same with all of the metrics out there. 
And if you do this consistently over many, many years and you keep ratcheting down the risk profile of the population, you will have a positive impact on healthcare costs, on absenteeism, and productivity. Wow. So really it is look at, at, at small changes. And, and, you know, we've all seen the uh, vendors putting out these huge numbers, these huge, huge changes. And you also brought up something very interesting that I just wanted to reiterate. You, you said this concept of net changes. Um, oftentimes we see graphs or charts that may not necessarily be that. Can you go into that a little bit? Right. I mean, if you think about it, you know, some people get worse and some people get better. And uh, one of the things that's somewhat deceptive in vendor reports is they only look at the high-risk people and then tell you, well, they got better. Or they, they look at the high, the acute group, you know, people who are going to the hospital, going to the emergency room, and look at their costs. And then, uh, by golly, a year later, their costs are down because that's regression to the mean. You know, people who are sick and, and have high costs, they're going to get better regardless of whether you're in the room or not. So you need to look at the entire population, everybody, how many people are becoming more stressed at the same time that those people are becoming less stressed as a result of your program. And that's why high engagement rates are so important. So if you can you know, improve the majority of the people in the population, that's a good outcome. But if you only focus on like 5%, 10% of the people and then say, well, we got them to, to you know, be more physically active and eat healthy and quit smoking, what about everybody else? You know, that's really the, the everybody else is what your organization is about, and that's what costs, costs you a lot of money, both in terms of direct and indirect costs. So one of the things vendors, I mean, uh, employers or others that are looking at these programs should ask, obviously, is are your reports showing me the net changes and not just these movements in one direction, as well as, you know, some of the other things you talked about. It's not just an HRA, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you want to do is create a dashboard of the key metrics that are important to senior management and say, okay, how, how are we moving on each of these metrics? And they all ought to be moving in the same direction. So as population health improves, as behavior changes, then the other metrics, financial metrics, should move too. But you also have to think about it in terms of proximal versus distal. So some things you can change, you know, within a year. You can get people aware of things. You can get them to participate. You can get, increase their knowledge, build their skills, and possibly get them to change their behavior, like eat healthier and be more physically active and manage stress and, and go to the doctor where appropriate. Those things are short-term objectives. But, you know, to reduce the risk of diabetes, to reduce the risk of heart disease and, and other risk factors and their related costs, that takes a lot longer so the expectations need to be thought through in terms of what you expect to achieve in one year, two years, three years, five, and even 10 or 20 years. Right. So it's really these leading and lagging indicators with the leading indicators being more process measure and people getting involved and aware and those lagging indicators being things that take a little bit longer to get. Let's also uh, shift a little bit and, and take a look. Does it make sense as, as companies are doing this and managing their populations to maybe also focus more on those with chronic diseases, more on that disease management perspective as an area that may have earlier cost savings than, say, the um, more uh, baseline individuals who are working around health, lifestyle, and wellness issues? Well, you know, my philosophy has always been continuum of care. So there are people who are tremendously healthy. They do all the right things. They don't need a lot of input and insight from you. I mean, I still read information and educational materials and health alerts and do all kinds of things. Uh, You do the same. You know, you monitor your sleep and your exercise and all those things. You're, you know, you're a healthy guy, but you still, you know, 
uh, want that information, you're still interested in that. So there ought to be uh, programs and, and devices and interventions and all kinds of things for people who are very healthy. But at the other extreme, obviously, you need people who are ill, chronically ill, uh, in acute uh, episodes. They need a different kind of attention, and it's a different kind of intervention. But the reality is that if you, if you just leave people alone until they get sick, you know, the horse is already out of the barn, and there's very little you can do to manage illness other than, you know, try to make it, uh, a person deal with it better. But what if you could prevent uh, diabetes? What if you could prevent heart disease? What if you could prevent uh, COPD and some other chronic illnesses that are debilitating but could have been prevented 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, and I think one of the, as you point out, you can't just ignore them. And one of the key things that just came out this past week is obviously uh, HHS is now looking at uh, paying for some of these prevention programs around diabetes because they've been able to show some effectiveness. So I think there clearly are ways that you can reduce the risks in populations and cut those uh, potential costs downstream. Exactly. I mean, that's a wonderful example because, uh, what, 10% of the U.S. population has diabetes now, but the estimates are as many as another 80 million people uh, are with prediabetes, and there's a lim- even more people potentially with metabolic syndromes, you know, high waist circumference, high cholesterol levels, and so forth. I mean, uh, some of the estimates out there are quite frightening, that these people will uh, get diabetes if these kinds of behavioral risk factors are not addressed and, and their behavior and, and their biometrics are not altered. Right. So the potential cost to an employer or a, or a health plan or an ACO could be enormous as uh, these uh, millions and millions of people come down with type 2 diabetes. Exactly. So, you know, the whole idea of having accountable care organizations or accountable health organizations, as you call them, uh, they, they look at the entire population, and these are people who are not yet patients today, but these are people who will become patients in the next uh, one, two, three, four, five years. And what if you head them off at the pass and do something to improve, to educate them, to improve their behaviors so that they are less likely to get that disease that's going to be very expensive? And where can people turn to to find good information? Uh, do you have any of your presentations up online, or are there ways that those can be distributed out so people could see some of this stuff? Yeah, actually, on our Johns Hopkins website, uh, we have something called Building Healthy Workplaces. Uh, and we this was a, a two-year project that was funded by the Robert L. Johnson Foundation. And what we did was we talked to experts. Uh, we went and did literature reviews, and we even visited uh, nine companies that had excellent cultures of health. Uh, we uh, interviewed people, we interviewed the employees, their managers, the implementers. We uh, put a lot of that out in terms of blog posts. We also shot videos there. Uh, so there's a lot of really good uh, information, and it's written in a journalistic style, in a narrative format, rather than scientific articles. Of course, we publish a lot, and we have published over the years. In fact, I think we're, we're above 200 publications at this point of all the different studies we've done over time. Uh, but that's one place to go to is Johns Hopkins website. And, you know, uh, videos and presentations are, are pretty voluminous, and they're sitting out there somewhere. Fantastic. We'll make sure we get that information up as well. So um, we've got just a few minutes left. Um, some of your work is with Truven. Uh, recent announcement with uh, IBM, uh, they, uh, they're working on the acquisition of Truven and obviously bringing together some big data sets. What – how do you, you're in the data world, you're analyzing stuff, obviously, post with a, a lot of this, but what's your sense of what kind of things that brings? 
I think there's tremendous synergy, and we're just really at the surface now of artificial intelligence and what is possible. Certainly, the people hunger for information. So if I've got a disease, whatever it is, small or large, I really am looking for what is the best way to manage this disease. And I want to be able to go into a doctor's office and say, you know, here's what I've got. Here's uh, every, all of my data. And here's what I think is going to work best for this kind of condition. Now, similarly, at the other side, the doctor can learn all that information about me uh, and then decide, based upon all the clinical trials and publications out there, you know, here's the right course of action for you given your condition. So that's very relevant at the individual level, but think about it at the population level. You know, what if we could monitor populations? Uh, what if we could look at their sleep patterns and their physical activity patterns and their eating habits and, and all the other things and then nudge them along the way to do things that are going to be more healthy to them and, and give them constant feedback about whether they're moving towards a healthier lifestyle versus not and, and a good quality lifestyle. And it's not just, you know, healthy is, is, a, is a big idea. So what if we merge and manage all of these data together for individual use but also for population use and, and get organizations to use the data more intelligently? Unbelievably exciting. I mean, that's uh, it's funny. I'm thinking back. Actually, it was a piece I wrote in 2006 called that was essentially about trying to create a Manhattan Project around data. And I said, Lawrence Livermore Labs ought to set this thing up and bring in everybody's data and everything and just mine the heck out of it. And now we're seeing that come to fruition by groups like IBM and, and others in the space looking at how they then apply these new machine learning tools, et cetera, to it. And what you really described is interesting, is this concept of precision medicine, in essence, knowing that individual, even down to the genome, et cetera, and all the other social data, and bringing that into the population health realm to improve the overall population. Fantastic, Ron. Really appreciate your time on the show, and uh, we'd love to get you back on again in the future. Well, thank you again. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate it, and look forward to other conversations in the future. And there you have it. That'll be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Ron Gitzel, for his time and insights today. Do follow Ron on Twitter via at Ron underscore Getzel, and that's G-O-E-T-Z-E-L, as well as at Proven Health, and lastly, at Johns Hopkins SPH, as in School of Public Health. And check them out on the web, respectively, TruvenHealth.com. Easy to find the Hopkins operation. Until we meet again, I'm Pop Health Week for Fred Goldstein. This is Greg Master saying bye now. Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you can save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.